other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, do you remember the good old days of about a year and a half ago when the only thing we had to worry about was a major crisis in Eastern Europe with the two largest nuclear powers in the world on opposite sides of an armed conflict? Well, now uh, we have not only that to worry about, but a major conflict in the Middle East, which has the potential to flare up and engulf not just the entire region, but the entire world. And on top of it, the House of Representatives is still at a standstill because they still can't agree as to who should be the Speaker of the House. A man who is an authority on all of that and a great deal more is a man with uh, a resume that is much longer than just about any guest we've ever had. Goes back about uh, 50, 60 years in both public and uh, in the, both the public sector and the private sector. Very pleased uh, to welcome the former U.S. Director of National Intelligence, a legal board member with no labels, Admiral Dennis Blair. Admiral Blair, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Frank. Admiral, I'm going to talk to you about some very serious subjects in a minute, but uh, before I get you to weigh in on this, I have to get you to clear up something that's been published in major publications about you and uh, may affect your credibility in the minds of a lot of our listeners. (laughs) It was reported that you were the first naval officer to ever attempt water skiing behind a modern destroyer that you were commanding. Is that true? Did you try to water ski behind a destroyer? I did. I did. It was uh, off of the mouth of uh, Tokyo Bay after a long time at sea, and uh, I was getting bored, and I thought the crew was getting bored, so we needed to liven it up, and so I gave it a shot. That's my kind of naval commander, sir, I'll tell you. All right. Um, you obviously were the chairman, was the, were the director of national intelligence. Intelligence has been a, a big part of uh, especially the latter part of your career in government service. A lot of folks are asking the question about this Hamas attack on Israel with the Mossad, with the Shin Bet, with the close uh, relationship that uh, American intelligence agencies have with Israeli intelligence agencies. How does a terrorist operation of this magnitude, land, sea, air, take place without Israeli intelligence and maybe American intelligence knowing about it beforehand? What's your take on this, sir? Well, I, I'm... Somewhat surprised, I would say, Frank, but not entirely. The uh, the technical means of in- intelligence uh, are uh, fairly well understood. Sa- satellites taking pictures, uh, signals intelligence people trying to intercept intercept uh, messages, and fairly sophisticated organizations can do everything the old-fashioned way without a lot of external signatures without a lot of communications and and uh and and pretty well under wraps uh it takes a while longer you have to talk in person you have to send written messages but it can be done 
the human intelligence uh, depend depends on uh, recruiting people in the right uh, position in another another organization that is working against you and and that frankly is is hard we have we have a hard time have had a hard time with it in terrorist organizations the israelis uh, do do as well so i can i can imagine that with compartmentation very careful planning taking their time hamas uh, could have been able to pull this operation of involving a couple of thousand of their of their uh, soldiers together without uh, it being detected. So disappointing, but not surprising. Now Israel's in the midst of uh, rooting out Hamas, and uh, a lot of people are concerned about the collateral damage that's involved here. A lot of uh, innocent people being uh, being hurt, being killed, having their homes destroyed. And uh, there's a lot of concern that this could lead to more te- uh, terrorist recruitment because the, uh, the brothers and the cousins of those that might be killed who are innocent might then be uh, subject to recruitment from groups like Hamas. How do you, and I guess maybe this is a very difficult question to answer in the course of a short radio interview, but how do you root out Samas and bring to justice the people that did this without butchering countless civilians and creating more terrorists in the process? Unfortunately, the way you have to do that is by putting your own people at somewhat greater risk. The the orders you give them are... Uh, have to be pretty tight in terms of uh, shooting back at uh, places that might involve women and children and other innocent people being uh, being killed. So it requires uh, going going more slowly, uh, going more carefully, maybe taking a few more casualties your, yourself. Uh, but in general, I think most modern armed forces find the it's worth it to be more careful uh, for exactly the reasons that you site and and we have such a such a negative example in front of us which is the way the russians have been acting in ukraine uh, actions which ultimately resorted in their president being indicted by the international criminal court so it's sort of the price we have to pay for countries like israel's and ours that believe in the value of human life and individual individual rights and responsibilities uh, fighting in these kinds of wars the issue of uh, the hostages, we got some rare good news out of the Middle East on Friday when it was announced that uh, two American hostages were released. How do you handle getting the hostages out? If you're the Israelis, if you're the Americans, uh, I mean, obviously, if you're the family member of one of these hostages, you want everything possible done to secure their release. But I would think that that's a very difficult thing to do if the demands for their release are unreasonable and include the release of a uh, hundred or a thousand Hamas militants. How do you handle the hostage aspect of this, Admiral? Hostages have a a value, but it's a value only as long as they're alive, right? That that is when you have leverage, and in these extraordinary times, which are different from previous hostage swaps that uh, Israel and the groups around it have, have negotiated. Uh, I just can't see Israel making these sort of swaps that it did in the, in the past. Um, 
if the determination that exists in Israel is everything we th- we think it probably is, they're going to move into Gaza and and uh, take take control of it for for at least a while, and the hostages in the large term are not going to stop them. So I think the I think the value of the hostage in changing Israeli policy is pretty pretty low, and that the Hamas, if it has any sense, will be realizing that the prices Israel is willing to pay at this point with the situation that exists now is not going to be high, and let's hope uh, that can lead to the hostages getting out of there. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Admiral Dennis Blair, former director of national intelligence and a no labels board member. Admiral Blair, last question about uh, foreign policy. And then I want to ask you yeah. about the, the chaos that we're seeing in Washington. We saw the president's address to the nation on uh, Thursday night, and he spoke not just about the situation in the Middle East, but the situation with respect to Russia and and Ukraine. However people might feel about what we're doing to Ukraine and supplying aid, however they might feel about what we're doing to Israel and supplying aid and along with humanitarian aid to the Palestinians, was it a mistake for President Biden to sort of marry the two issues in a primetime address? Obviously, you studied Russian uh, studies. You know far more about the history of the conflict uh, than I do. But uh, clearly, there are some major, major differences in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the history of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Was it a mistake for the president to marry the two issues in his address? I think what he was uh, doing, Frank, was pointing at the larger issue of American leadership we the group led by the united states democratic led countries market uh, capitalist uh, economies uh, ways to for minorities and and individuals to have their rights rights enforced is is really under siege from two directions it's both from authoritarian states that want to redraw the order like Russia and China, and of course from uh, terrorist groups, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, ISIS, Hamas, that use terrorism uh, in order to try to extract their concessions. And the idea that the United States has got to, if not lead the world, at least be the leader of the posse in dealing with both of those, I think is I think is accurate and is worth reminding Americans about. I mentioned your involvement with no labels. We've spent a lot of time talking about no labels on this program before, not only the Uh problem solvers uh, caucus in the House, but what they're thinking about doing on in the uh, presidential race. What made you get involved with no labels? As I mentioned, you have a pretty distinguished career in public service behind you. I'm sure you could be making a lot of money in the private sector. You don't necessarily need another project at this point in your life and in your career. Why choose this cause? Why no labels? It's pretty simple, and it connects to the discussion we were just having, Frank. Um, I spent all of my time looking outward from the United States at our enemies and making sure we could deal with them and keep them them from harming American interests. And I came to realize uh, that if we we can act together in this country, uh, we can handle all of these multiple challenges. If we can't, then we'll go down the way powerful countries have gone down in the past, generally consumed from inside rather than by, by their external enemies. And when I looked around for 
people within the United States who were working to solve the political dysfunction that that seems to be growing in our in our politics. No labels look to me at, like an organization that really had a a good north star. Uh, it had flexibility in terms of what it was doing. So I, I signed up back in uh, 2011 when I came out of uh, government for the last time. And I, I still believe that if we can fix our own, get our own house in order, we can handle the world. We've seen what's gone gone on in this speaker's race. So far, there have now been three, maybe three and a half, if you count Patrick McHenry, Republicans that have been nominated to be speaker and then not been able to get elected speaker or at least retain the speakership. What do you think what we're seeing in this speaker's race says about uh, D.C. dysfunction and the way Congress is doing business these days? It's it's interesting, isn't it, Frank? The, the American people do not want one party or the other to dominate the primary branches of government. So in their wisdom, they split it out pretty, pretty closely. There's not that much. Uh, one, one party doesn't really have the advantage. And. The American people, what I think they're saying, uh, we're not going to put one of you in charge. You two have to figure out how to work together to do the right thing for the country. There are things we like about both of your approaches. There are things we don't like, and we, we want you to work it out. But the way our system has set itself up, these closely divided governments lead to this absolute dysfunction. So... I think what No Labels is trying to do and what I believe we have to do is empower that group of group of government officials in the, on the Hill who believe that we can forge compromised bipartisan solutions to some of these big problems and move on. It doesn't mean they sacrifice their fundamental principles as Republicans or Democrats, but it does mean that they come together at, at uh, certain points to solve the big problems. And... I think that's what the American people expect, and I think they will not tolerate the two parties disregarding what they expect for much longer. I raised a similar point, not nearly as eloquently as you did on Twitter, when this whole thing started breaking down a few weeks ago with respect to the speaker's uh, race. And former Congressman Anthony Weiner responded to me and said, uh, no, this only happens under one party. Nancy Pelosi had the same kind of margin and ate President Trump's lunch on a daily basis. Putting aside that last aspect of eating President Trump's lunch. I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Is this is this a bipartisan problem of dysfunction or is this a Republican problem of dysfunction? I think it's a bipartisan uh, dysfunction. I, I mean, I don't think Nancy Pelosi pulled off a couple of things. Remember Obama, Obamacare? She had to go to extraordinary extra extra constitutional ways to get that passed. And um, that was kind of a one off. Uh uh, you know, Speaker President Biden and Speaker Schumer tried to put through these huge uh, wish lists of the the more extreme wing of the Democratic Party, and uh, they weren't able to weren't able to do it. They were beaten down even by members of their own party, like Senator Senator Manchin, much less the other other parties. And and the idea that you can somehow take a tiny 10 or 20 vote margin in the house or one or two senator in the senate and push through something big that the other party won't uh 
spend all its time trying to unravel once it gets back in convent into uh, power is, I think, uh, naive. And uh, and yet these two parties think they can do it. If they get a little majority, they can turn it into big mm-hmm. doings. The only big things that get done that last, that benefit this country over time, are the bipartisan bipartisan ones. And I think that um, that's what No Labels is trying trying to get, get through. And I think that's what most Americans believe. Is it time, in your view, for a bipartisan speaker rather than, uh, you know, uh, now that they're talking about Congressman Hearn from uh, Oklahoma, rather than a Jim Jordan, a Steve Scalise or Kevin McCarthy, is it time for Democrats and Republicans to get together on a consensus choice? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that every piece of business that the House of Representatives does will be will be bipart be bipartisan but i think it would mean that the big ones the big ones that have to last over time that have to that have to uh have have legs and and teeth so would have to be done on a bipartisan basis and if you look at the if you look at what most americans most of us in the center who are not out on the wings uh uh believe there are there are these solutions. And you, you can just go down the list on immigration. Most Americans believe that the border should be secure, but there should be a much wider and quicker path to legal citizenship. Congress can't get it done because it's in a tangle on even on something like abortion. Most Americans believe that there should be some period of time during which abortion is legal and a time after which it's uh, it, it's not barring extreme medical conditions. But of course, Congress can't address that one or even look at gun control. Most Americans believe that uh, guns should be legal, but that they should not be sold to people under 21 and they should not be sold without extensive background checks. On on the Internet and social media, most Americans believe that there should be uh, some sort of regulation to to avoid the dangers that we've seen from social media and and the Internet. Uh, but uh, but they. They can't agree on how and nothing gets done. So issue after issue, there is an important bipartisan deal there to be had. And uh, the way the way the poisonous politics of the moment are laid out, they don't happen. And, and the people suffer and they're getting tired of it. You've been very generous with your time, sir. But uh, since you mentioned the poison politics at the moment, I have to ask you about the poison uh, letters, uh, the poison pen letters that have been sent towards uh, no labels. And it has to do with the presidential race. Uh, No labels is planning to have an insurance policy. They've begun the process of getting on the ballot in uh, every state in the country that they're eligible to start. And they've said that if there's a Biden versus Trump rematch and the country doesn't want that, they're going to be prepared to offer an alternative. A lot of folks are viewing this, and uh, your colleague Joe Lieberman wrote a very persuasive op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying this wasn't the case, but a lot of people view this as a a kind of a secret attempt to elect Trump, either that that being the intentional effect of this or being an unintentional byproduct. Tell me your view, sir, is if no labels goes forward with running a centrist third party candidate, is all that going to do is elect Donald Trump? And why or why not? Yeah, first, let me let me square away the first time. I've been with no labels as long as anybody. I know the people who are involved in it and who are supporters. And the idea that we 
are somehow secretly intentionally trying to elect former President Trump is just wrong. Absolutely, absolutely off base, incorrect. None of us involved in Mabel thinks about take take that one off the table. Now, the unintentional argument that, well, you guys may not want to, but that's what it's going to be. Um, we take that very seriously. We do careful polling, talking to many people. And our analysis is that the a third ticket, a balanced ticket, one Republican, one Democrat, well-known figures who have a have good reputations would, draw, would pull equally from both President Biden and former President uh, Trump. And we think that there's actually a way that such a ticket could could win. Those are the only circumstances under which we are would go ahead and uh, and uh, turn this hard won ballot access that we've uh, that we've achieved so far and will achieve achieve more of over to a uh, a ticket. So rather than with us on on these unknowable uh, ac- accusations, I wish that the two parties would beat us on substance, that they could do these things that the American people want done rather than telling us, oh, you're just a spoiler. So we're going to charge on and we'll we'll see how it goes. Let me end with this, sir, um, just because it involves someone who was a, a former colleague of yours. Chuck Todd yeah. wrote an op-ed the other day uh, making a pretty persuasive case that if Admiral McRaven were to be the uh, no-labels candidate or run as a third-party candidate, that he'd be kind of the perfect mix of George Washington and Samuel L. Jackson from Snakes on a Plane and have the kind of appeal that could really unite the country. How would you feel? about uh, an Admiral McRaven no-labels candidacy? I think he'd be a very strong candidate. I've known Bill McRaven for quite some time. He's been tested under fire uh, and, and shown, that he, shown that he is a great, a great leader. Uh, just, just from knowing him, he wants the right thing for the, the country. He wants it because for all of the right reasons. Uh, and I think he would be a, a, a very strong member of a uh, of a national ticket uh, for uh, leading the country in the future. So I, I I agree with Chuck Todd. Admiral Dennis Blair, I appreciate the time and uh, I hope we can chat again soon. And the next time you're water skiing off of a destroyer, I hope I'm there to see it. <laughs> All right, Frank. Enjoyed talking with you and keep up the good work on your end, too. Thank you. Admiral Dennis Blair, former U.S. Director of National Intelligence and a board member with no labels. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.